Hello and welcome back to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast hosted by Liam and Rob. So we're back again. We've had a little bit of a break. Uh, yes, uh, a little bit longer than uh, than we planned, uh, but yes, we're back. Wait for it, wait for it. And it's about time. It's about, um, about bloody time. It's about bloody time, yeah. So yes, uh, we're back, fully refreshed and uh, and raring to go. Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> so we've got a very consistent theme with this upcoming series. Mm-hmm. We're sticking to the big finish stuff. So this week we're looking at the Land of the Dead, which is the first big finish from the year two thousand. And not only are we back just for this series, but hopefully we're back for good. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah. Well, what we've decided to do is uh, have a complete rejig of how we record these podcasts. One of the things that we initially thought was uh, was record these in blocks of 12 as, a, 12 as a season, which we've tried previously. And for one reason or another, we felt it didn't work and it kind of ruined the flow and, and so on. And also, I think it it uh, potentially confuses the listeners and you know, there's not much of a clear pattern of when we're coming back or, or what have you. So what we've decided to do is have a, a jig around and um, basically be pretty much releasing a podcast every week from now on until until one or both of us die. So, um, so yeah, to make it easier on us, we're not yeah. doing 12 consecutive episodes that might physically drain us. We're just going to do this till we die. <laughs> yeah. Uh, assuming, of course, that there's a demand and that people are actually listening <laughs> uh, to the podcast. Um, so that is a massive presumption on my part. Um, so the, yes. the, the new format, sorry to interrupt, um, will consist of the feature length episodes mm-hmm. like this, minisodes, yep, which will cover, which will have a time span of I don't know maybe thirty minutes, give or take. Or yes, le- or, or should it be less? Um, they'll be as as concise as possible, but usually they'll probably run about the the half hour mark. Yeah. Um, so for this week, this is this is the main this is the main podcast where we'll be talking at length, as we said about the land of the dead. Next week will be our first minisode where we'll be looking sort of briefly and concisely at uh, the long game. Yep, which is our first ninth Doctor podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, we'll talk about that next week. Mm-hmm. Be a nice, easy listen. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, nice, quick one. So, The Land of the Dead, it's a Fifth Doctor story, mm-hmm. with the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa, it's supposedly set in between Time Flight and Ark. Yes, that's right, yeah, yeah, and that, and that makes sense, because um, in terms of the televised series, um, at the end of Time Flight, they just departed and, and left Tegan at Heathrow Airport. And then the the immediate the immediate following story, which was the beginning of season twenty, we had Arc of Infinity, uh, where coincidentally um, Tegan turns up and gets involved and gets kidnapped by Omega. And one of the things that was quite nice uh, with Arc of Infinity, I know that it's a story that gets a lot of flack, but 
I have quite a soft spot for it and I do quite enjoy it. Um, it was quite nice to see the fifth Doctor and Nyssa, um, for the most part, just being the main Doctor and companion um, element of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think, both in terms of the characters and the actors, I think they have a really good relationship. So it makes sense, um, both in terms of there's a, there's a gap in the narrative which Big Finish can exploit, but it also makes sense that you know we have an adventure with, with just the Doctor and Nyssa. Yeah. Although they did part ways for a lot of the story, but that that tends to happen, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's true. But the, the moments when they are together, there is quite a nice uh, interaction, and it's sort of um, to be, there's a few moments within the story where because they are quite friendly with one another, but they are just friends. But the fact that they have to explain that to the other characters of that that they're just good friends. Yeah. In many respects, it's sort of it's a precursor to uh, David Tennant and Catherine Tate's um, relationship, you know, with uh, with the Doctor and Donna. This CD, I totally forgot that I'd got it signed by Sarah Sutton. Oh, fantastic! Oh, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, this mustn't be the first thing I got signed by her because the first time I stood in line, I was going to go and say hello, and I didn't realise that I'd done this, but I approached the table and I was so nervous I forgot to speak. Oh, I so this, so yeah. I just put something down and I got a bit of a cold stare, <laughs> and then I walked away and I and I there was no um there was no to Robert or anything it was just just a name. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> but this one she's wrote to Robert best wishes so I must have spoke to her this time. Yes, yeah, so I remember the second time around thinking oh god I hope she doesn't remember me, the rude guy. <laughs> <laughs> just shove something in her face. <laughs> Sign it, wrench. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, um, that was actually because uh, the, uh, the first convention when you sort of got nervous, which is understandable, because I think we were both a bit sort of giggly and nervous about it, because that was our very first convention uh, back in 2013, I think it was. That was actually quite. I mean, you know, you were nervous, and fine, makes sense. But that was actually quite polite. I mean, considering, do you remember what happened at the second convention? when it was during the question and answer session. It's all a bit of a blur. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe this. So uh, with the second convention that we went to, with the question and answer session, um, when it was open to us, the, the audience, to ask a question, some fan thought it was perfectly okay to stand up and say to Sarah Sutton, why are you wearing those glasses? They make you look terribly old. I think you should take them off. And I remember turning to you and phrasing this in a much more stronger way but basically going what on earth is going on <laughs> I just I thought that was outrageous uh, Sarah Sutton uh, basically in a very nice professional way but shut him down and made it perfectly clear that um, that, that that was a ridiculous thing to come out with but bloody hell I don't remember that it's people like him who make me look nice <laughs> Oh, well, they serve a purpose then, so by... <laughs> So, getting into the story of Land mm-hmm. of the Dead, yep. they arrive in Alaska. So, do you think this story would have made a good television story? Um, Is it too early to ask this question? Is it one for the end? <laughs> No, no, it's no, no. The only reason why I'm hesitating is because I hadn't, I hadn't actually considered that. Um, but I was just thinking, I think it will in terms of the characters and the setting of it, because there's, it's quite a nice claustrophobic setting. And you, if you were to televise it, it would just be a case of um, just a few sets. 
uh, with some good lighting and just a sound few effect. sets. You make the sets sound quite simple, but in this story, it, even your imagination can't wrap your head around some of the <laughs> places. <laughs> no, no, that's true. I mean, I'm talking about if you were adapting it for television. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in terms of the actual story as it is in audio, the, the rooms are, you know, because I was listening to this as a digital download from the Big Finish website, but. I understand that you've got the the actual CD. Yes. Does it actually come with a map? <gasps> what? Hold on. A map? Yeah. I don't see a map. Do I need like a black light to find it? <laughs> it's like a secret <laughs> map. It does come with a map. You've ha- How long have you had this? <laughs> wow. Okay, so there's a map. It looks like Cluedo. I'll put a picture of this on the website. Mm-hmm. If anyone's listening to this now, head over to cloisterbell.co.uk and find the post for this podcast. Yeah, it totally looks like the board game from Cluedo. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, the the, the, st- the bit that's marked storage looks like the um, the middle bit of the Cluedo where uh, where you put the cards. And yeah, <laughs> you've got uh, you've got the ice room, the timber room. Because um, the only reason why I, I, mean, I can't believe you've had this for years and you didn't realise there was a map, I only found this out because I read something about it and they said that they, they created a map so listeners would be able to um, ascertain where the characters were as the story progressed. Uh, but um, it, This would have helped. Well, to be uh, well, I suppose, but I actually quite liked the fact that I didn't have a map and I was, a ma- I was sort of mapping it in my own mind. Yeah. And the fact that... It, because... Um, my thought of it was that actually this was this space was a lot was a lot larger. Definitely the sea room looks tiny. I was thinking of a quite a vast cavern. Yeah. Although I mean the sea room is the largest of the rooms here, with the exception of the hall. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that uh, they thought that a map was actually needed. I mean I suppose it's a nice little touch, but I don't think it was I don't think it's necessary. No, not really. It shows you where they are in proximity to each other, all the rooms. Mm-hmm. But I don't quite agree with the scale of it. No, and the sea room isn't the whole isn't the whole purpose of it that it's supposed you're supposed to be able to see the sea from it. Yeah. So, but it's completely blocked by the rock face according to this map. Strange. Yeah, it's no. This isn't this isn't how I imagined it. <laughs> well, the CD you can't buy anymore, so. Maybe it's just not canon anymore. Yeah, the map's not canon, it's pants, let's move on. <laughs> they have a near miss with an aeroplane at the start. Yeah. We'll later know what the plane was and who was on it. Um, but was this a bit too cinematic for Doctor Who? <laughs> <laughs> no, because actually what this reminded me of was the beginning of Time Flight. Okay. <laughs> they managed it in that, although... <laughs> Time Flight's not renowned for its uh, its spectacular special effects. But, you know, it, it was something that they did. But to answer your earlier question, if this would make a good uh, television adventure, I think it would, with perhaps the exception of the monsters. Landing in Alaska, the Doctor and Nyssa encounter a group of people in a most unusual house, cut off not only by the harsh climate, but by their individual secrets and obsessions. Millionaire Sean Brett is utilising chunks of the local area to construct a shrine to his dead father. But when deadly creatures start roaming outside and a terrifying discovery is made inside the house, the Doctor realises that Brett has unleashed an unimaginably ancient force. Ooh. (laughs) 
some really cool characters in this story. Um, sometimes you can be listening to a story and when the characters are just killed off, you kind of feel what's the point to them, but there's a few characters in this story where they have a bit of a character arc, don't they? Some more of interest than others. Did any characters stand out to you? I think the most obvious one, but uh, is is Lucy Campbell's character, uh, Monica Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked her character. I mean, in some respects, you could say she is effectively sort of the Tegan of the story. Um, I mean, she's not. I'm not saying that she's a carbon copy, but um, you know, she's got the the sort of. She doesn't want to be there, and sort of like the wise cracks, and um, she has a some sort of similar relationship, uh, yeah. I, I think, to, to the Fifth Doctor. But there's a bit more, uh, but she is very much her own character, and there's a, there's a bit more sort of a, of, of a wit there, yeah, and especially a bit towards the end when she when there's a there's a bit of banter between them about you know how she deals with stress. So, you know, she starts off sarcastic and then she gets, you know, and then sort of progresses, mm-hmm. uh, which I quite liked. So I liked her character a lot. I also um, liked, you mentioned she kind of takes the place of Tegan. And mm-hmm. there's a bit where the doctor is asking them to go and make a cuppa. <laughs> and she tells them to go and do it himself. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, funny enough, that did remind me of uh, The Five Doctors a bit. Yes, because yeah. me and Liam, we've looked back at The Five Doctors and also Twice Upon a Time, and we've come to the conclusion that Richard Herndl and David Bradley's Doctor are a bit sexist. Yeah, whereas William Hartnell's Doctor isn't. He's not. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> weird, but yes. Um, and there's a scene where Richard Herndl's Doctor asks Tegan to... Go and get refreshments or go and get drinks or something. Yeah. <laughs> and she kind of snubs him for that. Yeah. Um, and then, but in this story, there's, this, there's another moment where the fifth doctor has a go at Monica about how she can't make a good cup or something, isn't it, later on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of you, I mean, was there one or more characters who, who stood out for you? Well, it's interesting. You you said, oh, the obvious character, and I thought you were going to say Chulong. Yeah, I've got thoughts on Chulong. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily the most interesting character, but there was a lot... It was a bit, there was a bit of mystery there or confusion with me because we're presented with a character... Um, who has his heritage there, but his mother or father is from America, possibly. Is that right? Yeah. And he's torn between the rational and the spiritual, as Nisa puts it. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting following that. It is. And uh, one of the things that I quite liked about the relationship between Chulong uh, and uh, Nissa is... It allowed a little bit of exploration with Nissa's character because Toulong is Toulong uh, is talking about um, this this confusion and this and his loss of culture, mm-hmm. and obviously Nissa can relate to that because in terms of the series, her her homeworld uh, Trakum was completely destroyed in the story of Logopolis. so she's got no home and everything's been destroyed. It just lives in her memory. So it allowed a little bit of exploration of that, which I thought was quite nice. Um, 
And there are interesting... I mean, you, you've just effectively just mentioned them there. There's lots of interesting themes with uh, Tulong's, Tulong's character where he is divided between uh, the rational and the spiritual. Yeah. Um, the issues I have, though, and this is... I think Neil Roberts, who who's the actor, plays the part really well. And he does make Tulong quite likeable. But at the same time, I did find his character a little bit irritating. Because he, he basically befriends Nissa and then sees sees Nissa as his sort of protector in in relation to his spiritual beliefs and but then doesn't really listen to her no and then of course jumping really far ahead he's not very nice to her in the fa- in the final moments is he when they tie up outside no and he and I thought oh maybe it's a bit of a bluff maybe he's just following going along with Brett yeah. It's interesting when we've got Tulong here and he's a Koyukan, which is the natives to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And we've got um, Gabrick as well. Yeah. And this story dares to try and debunk their belief system a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they would they would do it in this instance, but you know, we've had however many Christmas specials of all things you know the show would never try and debunk Christianity <laughs> and it makes me think in this instance are they, are they going too far I can see where you're coming from I think what I think what we need to remember is uh, the place of where Land of the Dead was the, sort of the world in which the Land of the Dead was released which was Doctor Who as a television program was dead and it wasn't coming back um and so when it came to original stories, we had um, Doctor Who magazine with the comics. So that could be as sort of uh, a mixture between aiming for uh, an adult readership and a child readership. It could sort of uh, go between those two. Uh, but in terms of Doctor Who novels and the, the Big Finish Order of Avengers, it, it aimed itself at... Um, the older fans, so the maturer fans. So what they were able to do there is deal with, um, if they so wished, deal with um, difficult subject matter. So when this was released in January 2000, you know, you're talking about, yes, you are right, they're, they're talking about a belief system and they're sort of, um, uh, I suppose, effectively rubbishing it. But I haven't got a problem with that in this because uh, I myself am religious, not wishing to go into it and bore the pants off people. But uh, I've got no problem with people exploring that uh, in it, within a narrative form um, uh, in something like Doctor Who. And the writer can take whatever... I mean, because the, the stories within the televised, the classic televised story where they were able to look at this, um, Meg Loss isn't particularly a great story. But one of the things that they have in there is the battle between science and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that story, they basically say that, well, religion is, uh, and superstition is a nonsense. And it's uh, the scientific and the rational and the factual, um, which wins the day. Uh, so, so that's fine. I think, um, so this basically is, uh, is exploring that theme in a much more mature way they can do that and it's absolutely fine I haven't got an issue with it 
I suppose uh, when it's come back onto television, uh, it's it's aiming itself to be accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, and I suppose it would be a bit weird if you had a Christmas special and the whole thing was basically going, yeah, isn't Christmas a load of crap? Yeah, or like, oh, Jesus, he was just the second last of the Jaggeroth or something strange like that. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say, okay, let's come up with a, let's come up with the alien explanation for this, for this story, yeah. everyone knows, you know, it wouldn't. Uh, one story that leaps to mind in, in in the revived series, I've forgotten the full name of it, but it's a, a Matt Smith story, which is the Rings of Akaten. That's it, yeah, because that that explores the a little bit of sort of religion and the idea of, of faith, mm-hmm. a little bit. So it's 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 not a theme that um, is to, is you know it's it is a theme that. Um, is explored within the TV series, but I suppose what's interesting with the TV series, uh, the Doctor appears a bit more open to other people's uh, belief systems, even though he himself may not agree with them. No. Whereas something like Big Finish, I think the story like this, it, it's made perfectly clear that um, Chulong's spiritual beliefs are has a much more rational explanation. Yeah, there's a moment in the story where Chulong's comparing these Permian creatures to um, something from his belief system and the doctor immediately shoots him down saying no that's not the case <laughs> so I thought in that instance he was being a bit he was being a bit disrespectful do you think that's in keeping with the fifth doctor's uh, personality hmm do you think it is um not particularly it did it, that was a moment that did stand out for me I mean what I don't know how true this is um but I have read something that actually Land of the Dead was written in seven days. Um, so it's a very quick turnaround. And the idea, the reason for that, it was to replace uh, Fearmonger in the schedule because Fearmonger was delayed for one reason or another. So Stephen Cole, who wrote Land of the Dead, uh, basically had to write it in seven days. I don't know how true that is, but I have come across that. So if that is the case, I think it's um, I think it's understandable if, if one or two imperfections in, in, in character crop up. Possibly. If that's the case it was written in seven days, I think it's um, doing quite a good job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I only read that uh, quite a while after having uh, listened to it, so I, I didn't listen to Land of the Dead with that in mind. Um, and I was quite impressed with it. Mm. Going back to the story, is there anything of note in the first episode? Obviously the Doctor and Nyssa arrive... Mm. Mm-hmm. And they go to Brett's um, mansion or facility. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, how do you visualise that? I know we've got a map of the basement now, <laughs> but what does that look like in your mind? The way that I sort of saw it was that it was this huge uh, open space that had been carved into the rock and ice. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though there was still a lot of work to do, I imagined that because the way that I understood it, that even though they were conducting this research, they were going to open it up for for exhibitions and things like that. So I had this idea that everything was my sort of my sort of imagination of it was everything was quite dark colours and very smooth, polished surfaces, mm-hmm. and, and and everything quite large and open. How, how did you picture it? Initially, uh, I pictured it 
a bit like a warehouse, but like a, a hotel inside. I don't know. I don't know, where I, got, I don't know where I got this from. When there's not enough explanation, my imagination just fills in the blanks. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that, I mean, that's a good thing with it, with an audio adventure because you can you can imagine it how, however however you like. I suppose. Have you seen Blade Runner twenty forty nine? No. Ah, oh, right. Okay. It is on my watch list, but I, I don't mind if you spoil anything. No, no, I'm not. I'm not going to spoil anything in terms of the plot. There's just certain uh, set designs. Uh, which came to mind was which is the way that I pictured certain places in Land of the Dead, but with much more, with much more muted, uh, darker colours. So like, like uh, uh, in my mind, everything was everything was basically a slate grey. Okay, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. Whereas the sets in Blade Runner that I'm talking about, they they tend to have a much more natural, sort of sandy, earthy colour. Mm. The Doctor and Nyssa, before they get to Brett's building, um, they're being pursued by a creature. And the Doctor acts quite noble and he distracts the creature so it doesn't chase after Nyssa. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think any of the other Doctors would have a- acted a bit differently? Like, would um, Colin Baker have kind of threw Nyssa at the creature, do you think? <laughs> I just. <laughs> You're laughing because you know it's true. Yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah, it is true. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Though that was something that was very much in keeping with the Fifth Doctor, especially you know because he he was you know, quite gentlemanly and noble, and I mean look what what he does in Caves of Androzani. He um he sacrifices himself uh, for the sake of Perry. Yeah. Yeah, the fifth the fifth Doctor is a bit more sort of brash, and in fact, well, if if we go back to the very first uh, Big Finish audio adventure, The Sirens of Time, one of the things that they do is that because that's a multi Doctor uh, story, they have the fifth, sixth, and seventh in there. The sixth Doctor does mock the fifth Doctor a little bit of you know basically saying something on the lines of, "Oh, you're not going to be um, so noble and suggest that you know you self sacrifice yourself or words to that effect," and he finds the whole thing quite tiresome. Um, I don't think this. I mean, the doctor's the doctor. I don't think the sixth doctor would have necessarily put his companion in danger, but he I, he certainly wouldn't have been as noble as the fifth. No, and he's quite heroic at the end of this story, isn't he? Mm-hmm. When he lures the creatures through the rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. With Tulong and Gabrick, you have these two characters. Gabrick is. Um, a Koyukon and Tulung is only half mm-hmm. he's torn between these two cultures but Tulung says that Gabrick holds little respect for his people it would later become clear that um, Gabrick has been going along with um, everything Brett wanted to do, to do defiling the land but he kind of puts the blame on Brett doesn't he mm-hmm. Um. But early on in the story, I was wondering um, which of the two holds better values for their um, for the culture. It turned out to be too long, too long, didn't it? Yeah. In fact, because, I mean, I don't know whether you'll agree with this. I don't think the character of Ga- uh, Gabrick was actually needed for the story. No. Um, and then he's kind of killed off quite quickly, isn't he? Yeah. And I didn't, now, I didn't mind. No, so. no, I, I mean, it, it provides... Um, 
a dramatic moment and it, 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 you know, and it emphasizes the danger that everyone's in. So it functions on, on, on that element fine. But in terms of the actual character, I, I mean, because it seemed that you would have Gabrick and Chulong, um, thematically speaking, having some, you know, something going on there. So as you said, you know, you have Gabrick, who's, uh, who's very much more on the spiritual side of things and, and Chulong sort of torn between the two. And you would think maybe there's something interesting that could have happened there. Or maybe it, was, it would have been too predictable, I don't know. But in the grand scheme of things, he, he just seems to be a bit of a spare part. And it, it seems to be, it seems to me that if you'd just completely written his character out, the story would progress and would still progress in very much the same way with no, no real difference. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that totally. Just when I said I didn't mind that he died, I was meaning I didn't mind that they killed his character off because <laughs> yeah, he didn't seem that important. No. Apart from maybe to represent a side of Chulung that he's abandoned. Uh, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. I was also wondering because I think it's Chulung's father who wasn't Koyukun. Mm-hmm. I was thinking because he died. Was he trying to retain more of his heritage? Um, because initially we see him um, embracing that side. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. Of course, Nissa sympathises with Tulung's loss. Mm-hmm. Because she's lost. And, and she says um, her whole world was destroyed. And, he, and later on he's like, oh, it does feel like that, doesn't it? Um, yeah, because obviously he's not going to be thinking that she means it literally. <laughs> But, but we know that she does. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Miss uh, tells Chulung that she's seen the plane. Mm-hmm. And the doctor's not very happy about that, is he? He's like, oh, Nissa. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he's obviously talking, I think, from the, the point of view of um, a sense of time and, and all the rest of it. But he's also got a point because... Well, oh, it does encu- it, it encourages his perception of um, the spiritual side of things, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. It, and it uh, and as a result of that, it actually places uh, Nissa in uh, in danger. Yeah, I always had the presumption that Tulung was um, quite a rational person. Like he could he could find a place in his mind in between the rational and the spiritual, because of course. The, Life isn't like that. It can't be. Can't be one or the other. You know, if you if you believe both to be true, then I thought maybe he would. Um, he wouldn't be so naive at the end to you know dismiss everything. I don't know. No, no, I, I agree with that, and it did seem to be a, a bit of a shame. And I think that's when I really started to find his character really irritating because he seems to. He allows himself to be strung along by Brett. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Brett is clearly unhinged and hasn't got a clue what he's talking about. And and what and also what doesn't make any sense is that uh, Chulong is very fond of Nissa and it sees her as um, as his protector. So why he would allow Brett to um, threaten her? Because it's perfectly clear that you know Brett's coming from one point of view, which is just to use her. And, and has no qualms about putting her in danger or even killing her. Um, whereas Chulong doesn't seem to be phased by that. Mm-hmm. But Chulong does say that his soul is bound to Brett. 
So I guess maybe, well, just because I, I think he wants to resolve the thing with his father. So mm-hmm. maybe yeah, yeah. even because of that, Nissa can't really stand in the way of that, regardless. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, So the sea room, apparently it holds 500,000 gallons of seawater mm-hmm. and a stretch of coastline. Now on the map, it's like a tiny room, like an L shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who came up with this map? I'm bothered by this map. And it has a holographic moon. And if you walk around, you'll find sea creatures. Oh, nice. <laughs> I want one. <laughs> um, is this story set in the year 2000? Um, oh, never thought of that. It's not like uh, slightly in the future. Did we have holographic moons back then? Because mm. I know that the the story begins uh, when they're hovering over Alaska and um, the TARDIS is picking up the strange energy emissions. That's in 1964. So it'll be 1994, it's 30 years later. Oh, yes, that's right, because it is 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 1994, yeah. Okay. So... No, sorry, because I completely forgotten. I knew that they mentioned a time, a time frame. I just I'd forgotten what it was. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. It is. It's thirty years. Oh, fair enough. The doctor meets Monica, and he points out to she's English, and she asks him if he's also from England. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know he's English. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's canon. He's English on his mother's side. I do like that bit in the TV movie where um, he he offers uh, the Eighth Doctor offers a, a jelly baby to the to the to the cop, and Grace is just like, just take it. He's British. <laughs> is is this that deleted scene? No, no, that was actually in it. All right, so have you seen the one where that where um, the whole crowd's like, give him the keys? <laughs> oh, blimey, I completely forgot. <laughs> forgotten about that yeah I'm pretty, I mean I quite like that scene it is funny but at the same time it's like yeah I'm pleased I'm pleased you edited the right <laughs> yeah I feel, I feel completely forgotten about that yeah I like how Monica comes across as quite a strong character mm-hmm. there's a few little bits like when there's a problem in the stone room and Brett's like I might have blame you for this and she's like no I wouldn't if I were you <laughs> <laughs> Even to her employer, she's she's quite independent. Yeah, and as I said, uh, I, I do like her character. I, I do like the way that she's written, and um, and Lucy Campbell plays her very well. And then obviously they find the bones, which isn't a fossil, but a creature, mm-hmm. the Permian creature. Um, this is another thing that throws Darwinism into a bit of. Di- out doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah because, I mean, but the, uh, because we have this terrestrial creature so it's from earth predates the dinosaurs but the way it adapts um, could really affect the, fo- the fossil record couldn't it uh, no I did I did like them as, a, as, a, as an idea um, simply because they seem to be absolutely impossible to kill. Yeah. 
uh, so th there's this big there's a big thing of you know how on earth are they going to uh, to deal with this how are they going to how are they going to be able to defeat them yeah and I like how they pieced things together in the final scene and found mm -hmm. the way found the way to kill them mm -hmm. yeah really progresses in the final moments so what did you think of the cliffhanger we had two cliffhangers where they're essentially about to be killed by one of these creatures I think this is locked in the sea room mm -hmm. and then it happens again and then there's a whole cliffhanger where they're about to be flooded <laughs> and then I was thinking well it'll not happen but then it kind of does doesn't it <laughs> yeah yeah it does not and I thought I thought the uh, the cliffhangers were quite good especially that second one that you mentioned because uh, the doctors threatened and they're going to be flooding and all the rest of it um so it was quite gripping, and it, it did make me want to uh, to continue. I mean, one, I, I liked the story from the beginning, and I, I liked the idea and the atmosphere and all the rest of it. Um, and there was basically a sense of danger from the off. And one of the things I liked about these cliffhangers was that they weren't quickly resolved. In fact, because as you just said, it looked like everything was going to be flooded, and, and it, indeed it does, so now they've got to deal with that. Um, so... The way that these things are resolved, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel like a cheap gimmick just to have a cliffhanger for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the stakes are high and, and these things do actually transpire. And so it's like, right, okay, we've already got this problem. Now we've got another problem to deal with on top of that. Mm -hmm. did, you th uh, did you think they were effective? Yes, I was worried maybe it was getting a bit repetitive since we had to um, kind of face off with the monster and then... Then they just go to safety, but no, it it was effective, yeah. And obviously, I was surprised by the the flood one, <laughs> but mm -hmm. no, I think it was a well-rounded four-part story. Yep, I agree with that. And I mentioned earlier how Gabrick had put down a defile on the land. He put that in, in Brett's name, you know. Mm -hmm. And similarly. We had Monica saying she's been tearing up the earth, but she kind of dismisses any kind of personal liability for that, saying it was all down to Brett, you know, it was his idea. But they went along with the work. Yeah. Despite how much of a strong character was said she was, mm -hmm. you know, she, she still kind of got on with it. So I think you can probably share out the um, accountability for what's gone on here, possibly. I think so, and especially because, I mean, the, the way that I read it was that when, when Monica is uh, is coming out with her sort of excuses, the way that I sort of read it in the performance was that she, even she knew it was excuses, um, even she, the way that I read it was that even she wasn't entirely convinced by it, that she knew that she shares some of the blame. And Gabrick has a bit of a gruesome death. Oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. that it. was... Uh, yeah, that was that was yeah, that was gruesome. <laughs> that would have been good on screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure. Yeah, would have been worse than um, Resurrection. I think they would have done a, a dragon fire type thing. Do you remember when uh, Khan's face gets melted? Right. Okay. So the creature fragments are from 260 million years ago, mm -hmm. um, which puts it. At, not the most recent mass extinction, thanks Adric, or uh, kind of puts it before that. <laughs> yeah. 
so we can place their story quite far back in Earth's history, can't we? So obviously, Ragnos creates the Earth. Um, mm-hmm. Skagroth lands and is um, a ship blows up. <laughs> and oh yeah. So we we'll put the Permians obviously way before the Silurians. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had a brief moment where it got to the point in the story where we learn the creatures inhabit the characteristics of the victims. Mm-hmm. So part of me was thinking, to what extent is this going to go? Are we going to have a bit of an um, invasion of the body snatchers kind of reveal, you know, where one of the characters is actually one of them? <laughs> or maybe Brett was all along, something like that. I see what you mean. Um, no, what it reminded me of was more the arc in space. You know how the um, the Wirren can either implant um, their spawn into a human, and then the Wirren will devour the human internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then not only do they digest the human, but also the whole of their knowledge, or they're able to um, have a human transform into a Wirren. And still retain all the knowledge that they had as a human. So uh, it reminded me of that more than anything. And the doctor mentions that um, give them a month and they'll be they'll be in space. <laughs> they'll have space travel. Was well, yeah because if if they're taking all the knowledge and then if they were to uh, escape from Alaska and then devour the whole of, of human knowledge and capability, <laughs> yeah, it, well, it would make sense. I suppose it, in some respects it would have been interesting had this story had a had a sequel because I don't think it has, you know, in in the sort of way that you know when you have the original Predator movie, you know that's set in a isolated location, and then when they had Predator Two, that was set in the city of Los Angeles. Imagine if they had these creatures, you know, so you got Land of the Dead, which is effectively Predator, the first Predator movie, set in this isolated location in Alaska. Imagine if they did a sequel later on down the line where you had these creatures in a city. Yeah, that'd be Do you cool. Think that... Yeah. Yeah. Or in a zoo where it takes on the characteristics of all the animals. That's oh, Alien 3. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's loads of animals in a zoo. <laughs> what would Alien versus Predator be to this? The Permians versus oh, the Wirren? Uh... Yeah, could... yeah, the Wirren. There yeah. you go. See, there's ideas here. <laughs> so, big finish if you're listening, make this happen. <laughs> and of course, another thing I mentioned earlier, but I'll go into it a bit more detail now. The doctor says that uh, the Koyakan's beliefs could have simply been the dormant creature's energy affecting their consciousness, which is quite a brave presumption, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even he, I mean, even the way that's phrased, that's that. He's just a guess, so yeah. why come out with that? I know. You don't know what you're talking about. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> <Good> idiot. <laughs> and so what did you think of the final the final struggle inside the the mine? I thought that was really good. I thought that was very effective. Um, because even when they work out how to maybe defeat them, there's even that question of going, well, is this wholly going to succeed? Is it going to be the case of the, or what's going to happen is they immediately, are they just going to get out of the immediate danger that they are in? And it's sort of resolved on that line. But 
because actually having joked about the possibility of being a sequel I, d- I did think that the way that the story was ending it was maybe it would it would have this sort of open-ended uh, climax so I was I was really gripped by it yeah. and oh. and the way that it is resolved made sense it sort of tied into the very thing that happens at the very beginning yes you know with, with what, the, what the TARDIS sees uh, with what the, uh, what the Doctor and Issa see um in 1964 that ties into oh the reason why they saw that was because that was um, uh, Ch- uh, Chulon's father actually defeating the monsters in the first place yeah. the way that he defeated them was basically through fire and explosion yeah. um, and of yeah, course so thought, it's Brett and Chulon's father who were there fathers yeah. who were there so it's like it's like they've got this legacy they're fulfilling mm. yeah and it's interesting that Brett's so determined to be the one who kills them that he kills himself yeah he would go he would go to that extent yeah and then again I mentioned earlier how brave the doctor was luring them into the rooms and then this is like they understand doors because <laughs> they're trying to get out <laughs> it's a strange light it was a strange light but I mean uh it works within the confines of the story, but yeah, it is one of those wonderful lines where if you take it out of take it out of context, it does sound bloody hilarious. <laughs> they understand yeah. doors, my god. <laughs> Obviously, they've got the um, the ability to use doors they've got from Gabrick. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. So Gabrick und- understood doors, <laughs> so he wasn't a total idiot. Yeah. And on a final note, the Doctor and Nissa leave, and. Monica and Tula, um, mm-hmm. do they hook up? N- um, sure, why not? No. Um, <laughs> okay, no, no. My, my, serious, no. my serious question is, what would have been, been their potential as a companion? Because you've got these two characters, there's nothing, well, there's not much left for them there, especially for Monica. Mm-hmm. Which of them has the potential to be a companion at the end of the story? Mm. Um, it could be argued that they that they potentially would they make a good bo- team TARDIS no they wouldn't but there are elements in there where as I said you know because uh, Monica Lewis in some respects she is very much her own thing as I said she's not a carbon copy but she is a sort of a Tegan like character uh, in the case of Chu Long I suppose he could be he could have been a cross between Katarina uh, who was in the Myth Makers and the Daleks Master Plan. Okay. Uh, uh, a cross between her and Jamie. That's the sort of comparison I would have to, to other, other Doctor Who companions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, no, I, 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 if they were to join the TARDIS, I can't... I'd be very surprised if, if, if they had worked. They, they, they're good characters within the confines of this story. I like this question because you can apply it to a lot of stories because a lot of guest stars in episodes kind of left behind and there's always mm-hmm. this potential of them doing more that's never explored yeah that is true I mean there are, there are certain um, uh, Doctor Who's I mean in terms of the Peter Davison era there are there are characters in, in Kinder and the Awakening uh, in there which were oh they would have been a good companion mm. um, you know there's a bit of richness to how the characters are written and how and how the the, the actors perform them and you go Oh yeah, it's there's something there that could have could have gone on a much longer 
you know, could have gone on for a few stories, which would have been interesting. So yeah, it, it is an interesting potential. Or what if. So in terms of a ranking, what would you give this? I think for this story, I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, yeah, I would give it exactly the same. I, I quite like the story. Uh, it wasn't perfect. There were two things, but on the whole, I think it worked. It was, it was atmospheric. There were interesting ideas in there. Uh, the characters were really good. Chulong did irritate me a little bit towards the end, but uh, it was fine. I think Gab, as we said before, Gabrock, um, Gabrock, Gabrick, uh, he... He, uh, he understood he, doors. He understood doors, uh, and that was it. And uh, that was fine. And just, so in of itself, I give it 7 out of 10. It's a good solid story. I'd quite happily uh, listen to it again. Of the Big Finish audio adventures that we've listened to, Phantasmagoria remains my favourite. That was a good one. Mm. Although we did, we did give David Walliams a bit of a hammering for that story, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, I think I think we did a bit. But um, oh yes, yeah, yeah. Because, because it, it, he played two characters, and they both sounded exactly the same. Just completely threw us off. Yeah, it did. Um, but with the exception, once you once you cotton on to that, I think it's uh, and that wasn't a pun. Um, just because the, the name of the character. Hang on, one of the characters is called Cotton, aren't they? Dot Cotton? No, Nick, Nick Cotton. No, what is it? Someone, someone Cotton. Yeah, but, uh, when you when you try, uh, <laughs> the moment you have to start explaining a crappy joke, it's really not worth it. Um, no, there isn't. I, th- I thought there was a character called Cotton for some reason. Anyway, we'll quickly move on. Um, Moving on. Yes, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're right, Mark. Uh, no, not Mark Gatiss. He wrote it. Uh, who would talk about David Williams? Yes. Uh, yeah, because he played. Uh, he played two characters, and they sounded exactly the same. Yeah. There should be a disclaimer on on the CD case. <laughs> Warning: actor not as good as should have been. Um, but, but apart from that, uh, it's easy to cotton on to, and that's fine. Uh, and I have the pun that wasn't there. Um, and that's, that's, I think what it is is because he plays Quincy Flowers, and for some reason I had it in my mind, Flowers, Cotton, anyway, whatever. I haven't, I haven't moved on, even though I said I would. Uh, Phantasmagoria is, is, is a good story, yeah. Yeah, despite what, me, what we might say. So next week... As we explained, we'll be looking at the long game in a little mini-sode. And the week after that, we'll be returning to Big Finish and listening to The Fearmonger. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And this is our first standalone Sylvester McCoy story. Well, I think that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And keep checking on cloisterbell.co.uk. We are doing weekly episodes from now on. Promise. That's right. And thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.